You are listening to a podcast of Elam Lutheran Church in Osakis, Minnesota. Our passion is to be an oasis of life-giving water where lost and wandering souls can find eternal refreshment. For more content and to find out more about our ministries, please visit osakiselamchurch.com. Well, last week we kicked off a new series in the book of Ruth. And last week wasn't really a sermon because we didn't really dive into the text itself. What we did was just a kind of a broad overview. I read through the entire book of, of Ruth and we got a feel for, for what's, what's going on, what's going to happen. And so for the next 10 weeks or so, we're going to be walking through the book of Ruth. This is going to be a deep dive. You know, a lot of times on a typical Sunday morning, maybe we'll be in the Gospel of John one week, and then the next week we're in Isaiah, and then Galatians, and Romans, and so we, we end up kind of jumping all over the place. But we're going to do things differently. There's, there's great value in taking even just a short book like the book of Ruth, four chapters long in the Old Testament, and going through it, picking it apart verse by verse really slowly, and, and it, it gives you the ability to absorb information and see truths that you may not have seen before. So we're going to pause and we're going to go through this thing very, very slowly. So last week we talked about the big, kind of the main point for this entire series. So why don't you say this here with me? Vulnerable people can find protection under Yahweh's wings. The book of Ruth is about a character by the name of Ruth and her mother-in-law, Naomi. And what we see in this book is that there's layer after layer after layer of vulnerability in each of these characters. First off, they're women in a male-dominated society. Secondly, they're moving to a, a foreign land where they would have been you know, exiled, essentially. They would not have been accepted. They wouldn't understand the customs of the people around them. Uh, and then they become widows. You know, a widow would not have the ability to provide for themselves, so they're losing their economic means. And layer after layer after layer, and, and they lose, you know, all of their, their home and, and everything. So what we're seeing in, in the book of Ruth, and this is where we want to see ourselves as well, is that in Ruth we see someone who is vulnerable. We see someone who is, is vulnerable, and we see God's heart for vulnerable people. And in her, we see ourselves, too, as being open and vulnerable to the attacks of, of our own heart and sin and the devil, which, which constantly assail us. And yet we see God's redemptive plan working out through this book absolutely beautifully. Now, you had some homework for this last week. The challenge was for you to read through the entire book of Ruth every single day of the week. And since I know that every single one of you did just that, I'm going to go ahead and, and give you this little quiz. I'm, I'm sure you'll all ace it. P please don't be frightened if you get these wrong. Your, uh, your membership will not be in jeopardy. Um, number one, when did the events in the book of Ruth take place? <laughs> Old Testament. Yes. Specifically... During the period of the judges, this guy over here, yep, all right, closer to about 1,000 B.C., 1,000 to 1,200 B.C., 
Yeah. Number two, name all members in Naomi's household. Here's the thing. Don't shout it out. I want you to raise your hand and you need to say it. Name all the members in Naomi's household. If you can just name one, that's good. Yeah. Orpah. Yep. Her daughter-in-law. Who else? You know what? Just shout them out. Yeah. Elimelech, her husband. There you go. Her son. Ruth and Orpah. There. Nice. You guys have been doing your homework. Okay. Number three, where was Ruth from? Moab? 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 Yes, absolutely. Got it right. This one's a little challenging. How much barley did Ruth gather in Boaz's field? What? I got to look at this then to make sure I got it right. What did you say? Galen, what did you say? A bushel? I got three-fifths of a bushel, which is one ephah, which is how many liters? Anybody know? 22 liters. That's a lot of barley. Last question. Where did Boaz propose to Ruth? What's that? Where did Boaz propose to Ruth? No! Yes, yes. This is a trick question. Boaz did not propose to Ruth. Ruth proposed to Boaz at the threshing floor. I'll let you off the hook for that one, Linda. So what I'm going to do now is I'm going to read through the first few verses of the book of Ruth. And I'll ask you to rise this morning for the reading of God's word. This is Ruth chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. Ruth 1, beginning at verse 1. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. So a man from Bethlehem in Judah, together with his wife and two sons, went to live for a while in the country of Moab. The man's name was Elimelech, his wife's name was Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Malon and Kilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem, Judah. And they went into Moab and lived there. Now Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died, and she was left with her two sons. They married Moabite women, one named Orpah and the other Ruth. After they had lived there about ten years, both Malon and Kilian also died, and Naomi was left without her two sons and her husband. Heavenly Father, this book of Ruth starts out on a tragic note. And we are not a people unfamiliar with tragedy, with pain, with loss. God, I pray that as we, we read through the story today that we would identify with, with what Naomi is going through here, God. And, and even more than that, that we would be pointed toward the only one who can do anything about it, which is you through your son, Jesus Christ. So please bless our time together, God. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. You may be seated. The book of Ruth starts out with a journey. There's a famine in the land of, of Israel, in Bethel. Bethel is kind of a suburb of Jerusalem. So in the, the southern 
the southern part of, of Israel. And there's a famine and there's, there's no food. And so Naomi and her husband, they, they leave their homeland. And now remember, this isn't just like a jump from Osakis to Alexandria. This is, distance-wise, it's not that far. But what it is, is they're leaving the promised land. They're leaving this land that God had promised to give them, where he promised to bless them ever since the Old Testament with, with Moses and, and Abraham. God promised to bring them there. And so for them to leave the land is, in a sense, to separate themselves from God's promises. And they go to the land of Moab. Now, if you read through the Old Testament, you'll see that Moab and Israel were not exactly best friends most of the time. Moab, I was going to have a map for you up here, but I didn't. But if you can picture, it's, it's pretty, the, the land of Israel is pretty easy to, to picture. So on the north, you've got the Sea of Galilee. and the south is the Dead Sea, and there's a river connecting the two, right? To the west of that is generally the Promised Land. To the east of that is called the Transjordan region. And this is where the land of Moab is. It's on the east side of the Dead Sea. And these Moabites, who were the enemies of, of the Israel, they, they lived on farming primarily. And the, <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> the land of, of Moab was up on a, a giant plateau. A good, a good chunk of it was really good farming area. And so it was, it was likely in, in this area, we don't know exactly where, that Naomi and Elimelech and their family went to live. And we mentioned this last week, that the book of Ruth occurring during the period of the judges is a really important thing to note, because there's a huge contrast there, right? The period of the judges was this really kind of dark time in Israel's history where some of the worst things imaginable, like they, they basically bottom out morally and spiritually speaking. And against that dark backdrop, we have the book of Ruth. So I'm going to give you a feel for a little bit of that backdrop by reading from the book of Judges. So if you have your Bibles, why don't you go ahead and turn there with me to Judges 2, verses 8 through 19. Judges 2, 8 through 19. Just as a brief review to kind of bring you up to this point, Moses had led the people out of Egypt. He had led the Israelites out of Egypt. But Moses didn't enter the promised land. Joshua was the one who brought the Israelites forward into the promised land. And they entered the promised land, but they never fully conquered it. They left kind of remnants of these, these people and these tribes, and they didn't fully ever do what, what God called them to do. And so after Joshua, this period of the Judges picks up. This is Judges 2 verse 8. Joshua, son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110. And they buried him there in the land of his inheritance, at Timnath Heres, in the hill country of Ephraim, north of Mount Gash. After that, whole generation had been gathered to their ancestors. Another generation grew up who knew neither the Lord nor what he had done for Israel. Then the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord and served the Baals. They forsook the Lord, the God of their ancestors, who had brought them out of Egypt. They followed and worshipped various gods of the peoples around them. They aroused the Lord's anger because they forsook him and served Baals and Ashtoreths. 
In his anger against Israel, the Lord gave them into the hands of raiders who plundered them. He sold them into the hands of their enemies all around, whom they were no longer able to resist. Whenever Israel went out to fight, the hand of the Lord was against them to defeat them, just as he had sworn to them. They were in great distress. Then the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hands of these raiders. Yet they would not listen to their judges, but prostituted themselves to other gods and worshipped them. They quickly turned from the ways of their ancestors, who had been obedient to the Lord's commands. Whenever the Lord raised up a judge for them, he was with the judge and saved them out of the hands of their enemies as long as the judge lived. For the Lord relented because of their groaning under, whose, under those who oppressed and afflicted them. But when the judge died, the people turned to ways even more corrupt than those of their ancestors, following other gods and serving and worshiping them. They refused to give up their evil practices and stubborn ways. This short passage encapsulates the cycle that we see repeating over and over and over again in the book of Judges. We see the Israelites sin. We see God punish them. We see the Israelites repent and call out to God for salvation. God sends another judge. The Israelites sin again. God punishes. There's repentance. Another judge over and over and over again. It's kind of this cyclic. It's not a, not a straight linear graph by, by any means. And against this dark backdrop, we have this book of Ruth, which really could be called the Gospel of Ruth because it is good news. But it doesn't really start out that way, does it? These first five verses, we don't even get to Ruth. We're, we're talking only about Naomi. And what we see is in every single one of these verses, Naomi is losing something really, really important and dear to her. In verse, verse 1, they, they leave the promised land for a journey to live for a while, is what they think, in the country of Moab. So what are they leaving behind? The promised land. Home. Everything familiar to them. And then in verse 2, now they're going to Moab not just to, to, to be there for a, for, a, for a time, but to actually live there. So it's becoming a more permanent thing. And then Naomi's husband dies, so she's left a widow. This is verse 3. She only has her two sons. And then her two sons go off and they marry Moabite women. And then those sons die and Ruth is left alone in this foreign country with two Moabite women as her daughter-in-law. So you see, there's just loss after loss after loss. It's like Naomi is in the ring and she is just getting pounded with punch after punch after punch, losing one thing, then the next, and then the next. But what we see even more than that with Naomi is that she's not just losing stuff. It's not just her things, her, her people that are at stake here. It's her very identity. You see, Ruth is losing, Naomi is losing Everything, everyone that is important to her. And so the question arises as to who am I without these people? 
Who am I without this loved one? Who am I without this promised land? Like, am I even an Israelite anymore? Do I still receive and benefit from God's promises? You know, she's no longer a, a wife. Her husband's dead. She's, she's no longer an Israelite, really, in the sense that she is, but in the sense that not in the same sense of the people who, who stayed in Israel were. And so we see all of these, these things building one after the next after the next. And so Ruth's identity is at stake here. When everything else is stripped away, what's left? What's left? So what about you? What are the things that you are going to lose, that you are in the process of losing, that you have lost in the past, things you feel that are being stripped away and taken from you? It might be a person. It might be someone that you, you love very dearly who you know is, is not long for this world or, or is sick and, and is suffering. And you want to hold so, so tightly and do everything you can to, to keep that person here. And it could be a place. Could be a new home. Could be leaving an old home. Could be moving to a, a new town or, or a new area. And it could be stuff. We cling to our stuff pretty tightly, don't we? Or maybe it's just a change of some kind, one kind or another. And here's the thing about change, guys. Change always involves loss. Change of any kind, even good change. Think of this. Think of a, a father giving his daughter away on her wedding day. The dad inevitably breaks down in tears, right? And we would look at that and say, well, those are tears of joy. But they're not. Those are tears of sorrow because that dad is losing his little girl. She's not going to be his daughter in the, in the same way that, that she once was. He, he's literally handing her off to this new person. Change, even good change, always involves loss. So maybe for you, it's, it's, a, it's a change, a big life thing that is happening where loss is imminent. When everything else is stripped from you, who are you? Who are we? Who am I? When all these things that seem like part of my identity are just gone, who am I? Here's a question worth considering. Why is it that we fear losing things? So much. Why is it that we fear losing people, places, things, whatever it is, so much? Well, you see what that fear reveals is it reveals what we love most of all. When we say, if I were to let go of that thing, that person, that place, whatever it is, if I were to do that, then I wouldn't be okay anymore. I don't know what in the world I would do if, if that was lost. 
See, what that reveals is how tightly we cling to those things and how easily they become a part of who we are, our identity. The definition of a God is what we fear, love, or trust above all else. What do we love most of all? Whatever that is, that's our God, small g, God. Now, just to clarify here, this is not to say that there isn't a place for godly sorrow and weeping. There absolutely is. God makes this abundantly clear that, yes, in this world we will have troubles, there will be pain, there will be suffering, there will have tears. We, we, we see this all over the Psalms, right? But it is to say that even in our, our, our pain and in our grief, even there, our brokenness is revealed. So there's loss everywhere to start out this book, to open this book. It, it, it starts, this beautiful tale of redemption starts on a note of, of hopelessness. Here's a good tagline. If there were to be a movie about the book of Ruth, Driven from her homeland by famine, cruelly robbed of loved ones by death, a lonely old widow sits abandoned in a foreign land. Boy, that paints a picture, doesn't it? You can just see the, the camera panning in and, and zooming in on, on this particular scene. And we would look at that. I don't know about you, but I look at that. And I would go, my default is to go to, okay, this sounds utterly tragic, utterly hopeless. But what we need to understand is that all of Scripture needs to be read in light of Scripture. And so that means when we read something like this, something about a famine, and about a tragic event, what that should conjure up for us is echoes of similar events that happened earlier in the Old Testament. See, there are these, these stories where, where famine or some huge natural disaster, this, this happens again and again and again. So let's think about just one of those. Let's think of the story of Joseph. Joseph, the son of Israel, who was sent to Egypt by his brothers. This horrible, tragic Thing, which entailed all sorts of, of division and, and grief. And Joseph ends up in Egypt, and what happens there? Well, he, raised, he rises to the ranks, and he becomes kind of the overseer over really all of, all of everything. And there's a famine in the land, right? Famine. And what happens? In that famine, Joseph, who's overseeing everything, his brothers come to him, and Israel has to get food from Egypt. And so this, this story, which starts out on a note of tragedy and loss and famine, ends up being this great reversal. I mentioned last week that we should try to read the book of Ruth the way that we would a good historical novel. And it's for reasons like this. 
There's a plot unfolding here. So though it starts out on this note of hopelessness, we know that God is working this theme of reversal throughout it. And so we, we, we know where it's headed in, in a sense because of the Old Testament stories that, that we know and, and have heard before. And another thing is that in the, in the book of Ruth, you'll notice that God is not a primary character. What I mean by that is he's not explicitly named a lot as being the one driving everything. He's more in the background. By that, I don't mean that he's less present or less a part of the story, but he's, he's, he's there in less visible ways. He's kind of behind the scenes. And, and that means, that's, that's very, very important because that means in these first few verses, even where all hope seems lost and we can't see God, he is there. He is working. He is bringing this plan of redemption forward. God is not, he is no less present in the first five verses, this tragedy, than at the very end where is this, there is this marriage and, and the child of promise continues. And the Messiah, the line of the Messiah comes. You see, God is there working just as much in the tragedy as he is in the triumph, just as much in the bad as he is in the good. And the other advantage that we have as New Testament Christians is whenever we look at the Old Testament, we kind of read it backwards. We see everything through the light of the Old, through, through, through the light of the New Testament. Because we have the New Testament. And so when we look on these events, we're not looking like the people of the Old Testament. We're looking forward to a Messiah, we are on the other side of that. We know that the Messiah has come, and so we look back and we filter all of these things through the cross. We filter all of them through Jesus and the hope of the gospel that we have. So I'm going to read Philippians 3, 7 through 9. If you have your Bibles, you can turn there with me. Philippians 3, verses 7 through 9a. This is the Apostle Paul speaking. He says, But whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ and be found in him. He counts all things as loss for the sake of, of knowing Jesus Christ. See, there's no comparison. Because whatever we lose, we gain back a hundredfold and more in the person of Jesus Christ and in the hope that he offers to us. So during these times of, of hopelessness, and these times of change, these times when we experience loss, these are an opportunity for us. 
They are an opportunity for God to remind us who we are and who we are not. When everything else is stripped away, God reminds us, you are not your achievements. You are not your accomplishments. You are not your moral status, your moral performance. You are not even, primarily, you are not even a husband, a wife, a sister, a brother. Who you are at your core, if you are a believing child of God, is just that, a beloved child of God. That is your identity. That is who you are. That does not change. That does not fluctuate. And that is something that God will hold on to. He does not kick us out of, of his family. And so in that sense, it is impossible for a Christian to be motherless, fatherless, sisterless, brotherless, any of these things because we are a part of the only family that lasts, of the only family that matters, bought, purchased, with the shed blood of Christ. That brings us to our main point for today, which I'm going to close with. All that we have, all that we need, we already have in Jesus Christ. All. All. All that you need you already have, dear friends, in Jesus Christ. You lack nothing. Hey friends, Pastor Luke here. Thanks so much for tuning in. I trust that you've been blessed by our message from God's Word today. Hey, we'd love to connect with you more. If you have comments or questions, you can email me directly at pastorchellog at gmail.com. That's pastor K-J-O-L-H-A-U-G at gmail.com. As we wrap up our time together today, please receive this benediction. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face toward you and give you his peace. Amen. Amen.